Unprepared to engage Mormon missionaries when they knock on your door? Perhaps the book Mormonism 101 will help. Mormonism 101, published by Baker Book. Available at your favorite Christian bookstore. Viewpoint on Mormonism, the program that examines the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from a biblical perspective. Viewpoint on Mormonism is sponsored by Mormonism Research Ministry. Since 1979, Mormonism Research Ministry has been dedicated to equipping the body of Christ with answers regarding the Christian faith in a manner that expresses gentleness and respect. And now, we hope you enjoy this repeat broadcast. Welcome to this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry. With me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. A number of books have been written by members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints telling about their experiences and what happened to them in order to join the church in the first place. So you have a lot of books out there that are testimonial. We want to look at a book, though, that I think is part testimonial and part doctrinal. It's a book titled Immersion in Mormonism especially for new members and also teens and members who struggle, gain and retain a stronger testimony. Quite a long title, isn't it? It is. Uh, And it was written by a convert. It says this on the cover, written by a convert, Charles Abbott. Charles Abbott lives in Provo, Utah, and describes himself as an attorney. We did some checking, and he is an attorney that's involved in advertising. Not criminal law, as far as we know, but he is an advertising attorney. Not to take that away from him, but there are a lot of things that Mr. Abbott says in this book that even though he's writing it for new members and teens and members who struggle, wouldn't you say, Eric, in looking this over, some of the arguments that he seems to use are not often used by Mormon apologists anymore. No. A lot of these arguments are questionable. But he's very convinced that they're good arguments. So he uses words like overwhelming. And we were discussing this as we were prepping for the show. What does that really mean when a person says that something like the evidence for the Book of Mormon is overwhelming? How do they arrive at that conclusion? What is overwhelming for one individual might be quite inadequate when it comes to another individual. And of course, We would say in our study of the Book of Mormon and our study of Mormonism as a whole, when someone says that they've come up with overwhelming evidence for the Book of Mormon, for instance, we just have to shake our head and wonder, what does that even mean? Well, the date of the book is 2014, and the author said he was 76 years of age at that time. I think it's pretty clear that he's writing this book toward the end of his life to explain his conversion to Mormonism, and I think probably for his family, for them to be able to read this in years to come, to see how this man at the age of 20 decided to leave the Episcopal Church to become a convert and become a Latter-day Saint. In fact, on page one, this is what he writes. I joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's interesting, throughout the book, he does not spell Latter-day right. He, he uses a capital D with no hyphen. I found that to be interesting. But he joins the LDS Church when he said, I was 20 years old. It was the best decision I have ever made in my life. Why? Because through my membership in the church, I have been blessed with everything that is really important. And can you imagine, Bill, if you're a granddaughter or great-granddaughter of this man reading this and how he starts off so strongly 
grandpa or great grandpa was a faithful Latter-day Saint and look at all it did for him. And certainly I want to continue in the same way that grandpa did. But in going through this book, there's something that, and maybe I overlooked it. Maybe you didn't catch it. If he talks about all these things that are really important to him, isn't it odd he doesn't place a lot of emphasis on forgiveness of his sins? No, I, I don't see a lot of emphasis on that at all. It, there's a lot of emphasis placed in other areas, but not that. And I would think that if I was writing a book and I was going to talk about my relationship with Jesus Christ, I think the first and foremost thing I would mention is the fact that I have forgiveness of my sins. Yes, and so as I mentioned, he did uh, go to a, an Episcopal church in his early years, and it's not until he's 20 years of age that he decides he's going to check on the books of different religions. Now, guess why he's going to do this? Well, he meets a girl, and this girl's name was Orany, and she was a Latter-day Saint and was not going to have anything to do with him unless he was a Latter-day Saint. So that was going to be a big motivation. So as he starts to do this research, on page 10, he says, what I learned is that there are many areas of disagreement among the Christian churches. And much of the book, he's going to spell these out, why he does not agree with the things of what Christianity has taught for 2,000 years compared to what he found as he did his research in Mormonism. Yeah, as you mentioned, he was a freshman at the University of Washington. But when you read that part of his testimony, when he says he went down to the stacks at the university library, found the shelves where the books on religion were kept, and began to select a few to read. Again, I don't know how much he really studied this topic. I don't know how in-depth he really studied this topic. But he says as he was going through these books, he ran across a book called A Marvelous Work in a Wonder, which of course was written by a Mormon apostle by the name of Legrand Richards. You're right. As, as he's doing this, it seems as a result of him meeting this Mormon girl that he was very interested in. She spells it O-R-A-N-E-E. -E. That's how she spells her name he learned that there were many areas of disagreement among the Christian churches. I wonder if he ever took the time to study to see how there were many areas of disagreement among many of the Latter-day Saint churches, or the Restoration churches as they are known. Because since Mormonism's founding back in 1830, it's been well documented that there have been over 200 splinter groups of Latter-day Saints. Now, many of those don't exist today, but many do. Did he ever bother to look into all the contradictions, as he sees them, between those Latter-day Saint movements and the one that he adheres to, the one that's headquartered in Salt Lake City? He doesn't say, call me suspicious, but I would probably doubt that he has looked into all those controversies and why there are so many splinter groups that disagree with the church that is headquartered here. One of the problems that I had as I read this book is I knew that he is a lawyer. I didn't know that he was an advertising lawyer until you did that research, Bill. But he talks about being a lawyer. And I'm thinking in the court of law, you're going to use evidence. You're going to use good reason to come to conclusions. And so I was fascinated when I saw the title and then I found out that he was a lawyer as I'm reading it. I was disappointed with the type of research he came up with because he was coming up with inaccurate portrayals of what Christianity teaches. Now, I want to get into one of those is the issue of who is God, and especially the Trinity. This is what he writes on page 12. He says, I determined right then and there to try to find out which of the many churches was right. 
Now that sounds like a Mormon statement if I've ever it heard one. It sounds like very Joseph-esque, <laughs> if you will. And he says, as I study the beliefs of the various churches, I learned that the doctrine of the Trinity, which has been accepted in one form or another by the Catholics and most of the Protestants, was the result of a political compromise engineered by Constantine, the emperor of the Roman Empire, in the city of Nicaea in 325 A.D. Now let me stop you there, because when I read a political compromise, he doesn't explain what he thinks this political compromise is. When I read the history of the Council of Nicaea, I don't see a compromise at all being made. In fact, I think that the Arians, and that was why the council was called in the first place, was because of the controversy started by Arius. He kind of got his rear end handed to him, to put it politely. I don't know what he read. I don't know what he took from what he read, but I wish he would have explained what he thought was a political compromise because I don't see that in history. No. And then he goes on and says Constantine wasn't even a Christian, but instead was a sun worshiper. Constantine claimed to be a Christian. Now there's controversy over whether or not he was a true believer. Or You know, you can debate that issue, but his mother, Helena, is the one who helped him to become a Christian. And certainly it was a political move as well. But when he says he wasn't a Christian, that's not what Constantine claimed. And then he continues on and writes, however, in trying to unify the Roman Empire, he felt it was important to reach some sort of unity among the warring factions of the Christian church. And then later he says this on page 13, the doctrines of the Trinity was nothing more than an attempt to satisfy both factions by saying that the Godhead consists of one God who is also three gods. See, that's why I'm disappointed here, Bill, because that's not an accurate portrayal of the Council of Nicaea or the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, he also says that Athanasius, who was a priesthood holder from Egypt and who also had many followers, was teaching that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost were one eternal being existing co-eternally, but at the same time were separate and distinct from each other. That's not a very good explanation of what Athanasius believed, and that certainly doesn't explain what the doctrine of the Trinity is all about. I don't know of any Trinitarian that would have explained it that way, but you would think that if Athanasius, being a priesthood holder from Egypt, if you're a new convert to the Mormon church, or let's say you're a Mormon and you're struggling, and you read of someone who was a priesthood holder, how would those two words affect your thinking? Now, I was trying to read this as a Latter-day Saint, and when I read that, I thought, well, wait a minute, Athanasius? He held the Aaronic or the Melchizedek priesthood? Because that's how a Mormon would think, Aaronic or Melchizedek. Now, of course, there was no Melchizedek priesthood in the New Testament. There was a priest in the Old Testament named Melchizedek, but we don't see any priesthood named after him. So I would think he might want to look into that aspect of biblical history. I just find it amazing that something as big as the Melchizedek priesthood in Mormonism isn't even described in the New Testament as Mormons believe it. In fact, the only time we ever read about Melchizedek is what? In the book of Hebrews. Mm -hmm. And it's applying that description to Jesus. But nowhere are we to learn in the New Testament that Peter, James, and John, for instance, had this Melchizedek priesthood. The New Testament is silent on that. You have to read into it to draw that conclusion because there certainly is no evidence in the New Testament to support it. So what does he mean by that? 
But let's go on here, where he says that Athanasius was teaching that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost were one eternal being, existing co-eternally, but at the same time were separate and distinct from each other. That would almost sound like what Joseph Smith was teaching later on. right. Why would you not like what Athanasius had to say then, if that's what he was really teaching? But I think you're absolutely correct in that last sentence when he says the doctrine of the Trinity was nothing more than an attempt to satisfy both factions by saying that the Godhead consists of one God who is also three gods. Would that have satisfied Arius, Eric? No. Because Arius did not believe that Jesus was God. He would not have liked that explanation at all. He wouldn't have liked the one that he gave on page 15 as well. And this is what he said. After studying these beliefs, I was confused. I couldn't understand how God could be three beings, but only one being. Well, I'm confused as well. Three beings, one being, three gods, one God. He's not explaining it well at all. When he says it was taught that the Godhead consists of one God who is also three gods, I'm a little disappointed in that kind of a conclusion because on page 13 and 14, as well as the top of page 15, he cites the Athanasian Creed. If he would have only read the Athanasian Creed, he would have read where it says, So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Ghost is God, and yet they are not three gods, but one God. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information regarding Mormonism Research Ministry, we encourage you to visit our website at www.mrm.org, where you can request our free newsletter, Mormonism Researched. We hope you will join us again as we look at another viewpoint on Mormonism.